Morning, church. We're going to be in God's Word today at the beginning of the new year, 2024. I realized I am 43 years and one month old today. That means nothing, but I just realized that just now. So, ah, it's very nice to be together. I uh, get to come to the second to last sermon in 1 John before we finish this series through this letter written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, known as 1 John. This letter has helped us grasp and emphasize the finished work of Jesus as our sole means of relationship with God, our salvation from death, and our forgiveness of sins. All wrapped up in not our own effort or abilities, but in the person and work of Jesus. But this letter, while revealing this eternal truth pretty consistently throughout all of it, also gives John's hearers some things to live by through faith. And I want to make sure that we do not divorce what we believe from what we do, because what we do tends to verify what we believe. So as we read the second to last passage in this letter written to the church in Ephesus by the head elder John, perhaps think through what you too, 2,000 years later in 2024, can do differently. Because the truth of this word is, is as true today as it was when John wrote it, and we have the invitation to grow and mature in Christ as we apply his word to our lives. So first one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This seems pretty clear cut, right? At least the first part of this sentence, prior to the comma, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You're a believer. You're God's child. Everyone who believes, everyone who has faith, everyone who lives by this eternal truth is born of God. They are born again, and they're adopted into the family of God. That's pretty cut and dry, and while many think they can supersede this truth by trying really hard to be a good person, at least when people are looking, or by some other external action, John breaks it down pretty simply. But then he gives the evidence of this, the action that comes out of our sonship or our daughtership. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. And here he excludes every person who does not see Jesus as the Christ who does not put Christ as central to their beliefs and their salvation, to every religious person who chooses to believe in a God of their own imagination, he says, nope, you don't love the Father because loving God means you love his child as well. But the author may have two meanings here. But his child, his only son, Jesus Christ, is confirmation that we love the one true God because Jesus is God. I don't know if you didn't know that, but we're pretty sure Jesus is God. But as the second verse that we will study will seem to imply, John also means that we love the children of God, plural, the children of God, which is anyone who has believed that Jesus is Lord. They are then adopted into the family, and our relationship with God is demonstrated. I love this word. It is demonstrated by loving other people who God has adopted. Verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. 
So here we have both John speaking to the necessity of loving God's Son, but does it end there? No. In fact, it initiates what the love for the Son does, which is to love God's children as well. And so John says, we know that we love the children of God through loving God and keeping his commands, which depend on how you come to this passage, maybe how much of the prior part of the letter you've read. This might actually feel a little circular, but I do think that that was the intention of God for his people. See, love for God is established in God's Son and is demonstrated by our love for one another, for the other children of God. And so I'm a father to five, and I thought it was kind of cool that my son was reading the scripture today. I have begun to understand this more and more as a father to five. And if you are a parent, you perhaps have had a similar experience as well. See, I love my children. I attempt to provide for them, give them shelter and food and things that they want sometimes, but definitely everything they need. And Aaron and I attempt to equip them with the truth of the gospel and ways to navigate this world in the different contexts and situations that they find themselves in. We attempt to discipline them when necessary with the hope that they would grasp that this world will not allow you to act any way that you want. And this world is unfortunately very selfish and self-indulgent. And with all of this effort to attempt to care for and equip them to become intelligent, respectful, confident adults one day, it's a lot, times five. But as we have said before, it takes a village to raise a child, and it takes a community to raise a disciple. And so when others in this community and in our sphere of influence care for and love our children, it is one of, if not the best way, to love Aaron and I. Why? Because they're not only loved by us. They represent us as part of our family, sharing the same household, under the same roof. We all kind of look alike, and we have similar convictions. So when you love our children, there is an affection that is stirred in me for you because you have taken the time to care for and appreciate my kids. This past week, I caught up with an old friend. We went out to dinner and chatted about our lives like we tend to do once in a while. He is yet to be a believer, but I'm, but I'm just going to keep praying. And he's a good friend who cares about me, and he cares about my family. And I know this because when he checks in on how I'm doing, he always makes a point to ask how specifically, by name, my children are doing. He makes a point to ask specific questions about each and every single one of them. See, he actually knew my eldest before he knew me. He was all four of my first four kids' PE teacher in elementary school. And he's gone on to be a vice principal at a different school, but Reagan was actually a part of the first class he ever had when he became a teacher, and he still speaks fondly of her and how mature she was even back in fifth grade. Now, I like the guy, but there is a love that I have for him that is even beyond, he's a really good dude and we share similar beliefs and things that we like. He cares about my children. And that means a lot to me. Now, that analogy, like all analogies with God, eventually break down pretty quickly, but do see the correlation that to love God is also to love his children. And when we love his children, we don't get more out of God to a second level of heaven or anything like that 
we simply, as Paul puts it, makes his joy complete. And we are people who are loved, so we get to love others. And to understand grace, to understand God's love, to understand the truth of God's salvation offered to us in the person and work of Jesus means that we are all level at the foot of the cross. That doesn't make any sense because I'm standing up here. We are all level at the foot of the cross, okay? I had to do that just for you visual thinkers. All right. And when we focus on that, we can't help but be joyful and thankful that God would save not only you or me, but that he'd save others into the body of Christ, into the church for the glory of Jesus. So our demonstration of love for God is not to act as if we have earned grace somehow, because grace is getting what you don't deserve, but to be grateful to God and his grace offered to us. And so, and understanding that it is so wide, it is so big, it is so deep, and it is offered to others. And we too can rejoice when God saves undeserving people like us and around us, and apart from us, because he is good and we are his. So with that in mind, look at how John points out love for God and how it looks practically. He says in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So maybe when you think of love for God, you are quick to point out your affection for him in worship. You're like, man, I stand. I raise my hands. I get after it. Maybe you're quick to point out all that you know about him in study. Oh, I've read through the Bible 600 times and I, I've memorized all of the Torah. And da, da, da. Perhaps your love for God in your mind is wrapped up in how he makes you feel. And while all of those things are not bad at all, they are not what John says our love for God demonstrated actually looks like. What John says is that our love for God, our faith in him, manifests itself in a specific way. John says it is to obey his commands. Not out of duty, not out of burden, but to love God is to believe God at his word and to act on that belief. Ray Steadman is a pastor from Palo Alto who's went on to be with the Lord many years ago. And I listened to some of his sermons, and I liked how he put it when it came to faith. He said, but faith is not a set of facts. Faith is acting upon the facts that you believe. And I know a lot of people that get the Jesus feels. But if they're honest with themselves... They may believe in God, they may even believe in Jesus, but they don't believe God at his word because his commands are but a suggestion to them. A last resort when feeling guilty, rather than the gospel, if I may. His commands aren't truth to us, they are advice. And for the one who loves God, John says, it, it's those who believe God at his word and act accordingly. The one who has faith, who doesn't believe in a set of facts only, but acts upon those facts that they believe. And here is the eternal problem. What I'm communicating is true. This is the byproduct of faith. This is the byproduct of love for God. It's simply to obey what he says. But for the person who has not been indwelled with the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, for the person who hears this and thinks, 
What must I do to be saved? What's the bare minimum I have to accomplish in order to be saved? They then take this idea of obeying his commands as the way that they then can come to God rather than what John is communicating as the one who has come to God, who has been adopted by God, who has received grace, they then obey his commands in response because they love God. 1 John 4.19, we said this a few weeks back, we love because he first loved us. And in response to this love, church, to understand and receive this love, we then love God imperfectly back. We don't do it perfectly. I know I don't love anyone perfectly, and I definitely don't love God back perfectly. And yet John even gives the secret to knowing if our obedience for God is grace-driven or if it's attempting to justify ourselves. If we are saying that, that God loves us because we first loved him, He says, and this is what it says in verse 3, and his commands are not burdensome. I spent a lot of time in that word. I spent a lot of time thinking through the commands of God and which ones I treat as burdensome, those that I stiff arm, those I want nothing to do with. And when he says these commands are not burdensome, he's saying they're not too heavy to bear. They're not impossible. They are not detestable. Because we believe God at his word. And we believe God and what he says, check it, is best for us. I think ever since the garden, we've been thinking that God has been holding out on us. When God actually gives us what is best for us, and that's what it means to believe him at his word. Verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, if I'm honest, I don't like how NIV reads, at least here, especially the end where it says, even our faith. That can be confusing. You can assume that means something else. And rarely do I feel this way with NIV. Uh, I, I couldn't remember what it actually stands for. Nearly inspired version is what came to mind. That's not what it stands for. But this doesn't read well in my opinion. I usually go to either NASB or ESB in this case, which says the same thing, but I think it's a little simpler. 1 John 5, 4, ESV. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I just feel this tracks better. Those who have faith have overcome the world because of that faith. Overcoming the world means that because of God, We are able, check it, to resist temptation. Did you know that? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are able to resist temptation. You are indwelled with the Spirit of God. And what a gift that God gives on top of his grace for you to believe. He gives you his Spirit. He gives you access through faith and to believe God at his word to choose God's way over the world's way. That is what overcoming is all about. And as John said, it is our faith. But faith in what? Or really, faith in whom? Well, I'm sure you know who I'm about to say, Jesus. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what is it about Jesus, church, that we have faith in? 
It's that he is the Christ. As John began this chapter with, and that he is the son of God. Jesus isn't just a prophet. Jesus isn't just a great teacher. Jesus isn't identified by his humanitarian work or care for the exploited. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God incarnate, come as a baby, dependent upon his creation, grew in stature, and lived the perfect life without sin. So that those who do sin, that's me, who do sin could have their sin forgiven by Jesus. Not by his example, but by his sacrifice. And after that sacrifice, the victory that comes from Jesus, once and for all, is finding that our victory over sin is in his bodily resurrection. And friends, if you today are a believer, or maybe you're not a believer, I want you to know that Jesus and his finished work is what Christians identify with. That is what it means to believe that he is the Son of God, and to not just say you believe, but to act based on that fact. And without finding our identity in the truth about Jesus, in this truth about Jesus, and his finished work, and his exaltation, we may believe something about Jesus, but I don't think this is what John is getting at when it comes to believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at how John describes the one who came in the next verse. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, um, if you don't really know me that well, uh, a little bit of context for me. Grew up, didn't believe in God, was an atheist. Mom died when I was eight, super angry at the idea of God, wanted nothing to do with him. And then um, a girl and a family, and uh, God using that girl and that family to get my attention. I came to understand that Jesus rose from the dead, and then I, I couldn't stop uh, actually believing that. Once I believed that, it started to change everything in me. All right? Now, I started to speak, and I started to help in youth ministry, and I started to do a bunch of stuff, and then I used to travel and speak in front of lots of people, and man, was it good for my ego. And... I started to wrestle with the fact that there were people in my life that weren't being shepherded, that loved the Lord, but they didn't have people that actually would sit with them when their child died. I started to wrestle with the idea that there were people around me that uh, wouldn't be told the truth of the scriptures because they'd be offended by it and they'd just push away and, and a lot of these people leading them didn't feel like it was worth it. And I didn't have a church where I actually wanted my kids to grow up in. And so God started to stir something in me to want to actually be a part of leading a church and teaching and all that. When I first got into it, I kind of, if I'm honest, feel like I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Because I still really liked the ego part. And then God kind of brought a church plant together with Church of the Valley, and now we're Church of the Valley, and it's not been easy, and so on and so forth. But one thing I've noticed in that time is God has grown me for affection in Him and for his people. And the reason I bring all of that up is the verse I just read, because this is not a verse I would ever use when speaking in front of a thousand people. Why? It's confusing. But this is one of the benefits of being able to be one of your pastors, is we get to open the word and wrestle with the confusing, because it helps us have our affection stirred for God. So look, John uses a description that's taken in a few different ways via symbolism. 
Jesus came by water. Now, you might assume that means something. And there's a lot of interpretations that believe the specific thing that what Jesus meant or what John meant was that this phrase means Jesus' baptism, which symbolized his being baptized at the beginning of his earthly ministry, one that was an example for us. As he said in Matthew 3.15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed to be baptized. He didn't need his sins forgiven. But this was an example that he gave to all of those who would identify with him. It was not for his own sin, but it was so that we could identify with Jesus' death and resurrection symbolized in the waters of baptism. But coming in the water also in the scriptures, because we believe scripture interprets scripture, is symbolized in Jesus' own ministry in John's recording in John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus comes to him at night, so we call him Nick at night. He's a Pharisee, and he's, asked, he's asking Jesus who he is because he's seen Jesus do some amazing things. And all of these great things that Nicodemus has seen Jesus do, he wants Jesus to explain to him who he actually is. And Jesus cuts right to the point. He says in John, did I put for, oh, good. Yeah, okay, good. I didn't switch that. Thank you, Sarah. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this is a gross question, but how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter into their, enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I'm moving on. Verse five, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. I believe here water refers to the natural birth that everyone experiences. Jesus is saying that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're both born naturally and supernaturally, supernaturally being referred to by the spirit. But the reality is, People are not certain about exactly what Jesus meant when he spoke about the water. But I feel as if either interpretation that I just offered gets you to the same place. And I will show you in a few moments in the next verse why this matters. Back to verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So Jesus came not only by water, either baptism or natural birth to Mary, but also by blood, which is universally accepted as referring to Jesus' death. And how does one come by death? Seems a little confusing, but what John is getting at, and we will speak about in the next verse, is that these are the basic facts that testify about Jesus being the Son of God, so evidence of his deity, of, of his magnitude, of the fact that he is God, has come both in his birth or in his baptism and what it symbolizes, and also in his death for the forgiveness of sins for others. And not only that, but through the Spirit. And John confirms and testifies to who Jesus is because the Spirit is truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, what John is implying is that these three entities, the water being either physical birth or the symbol of Jesus' earthly ministry starting in his baptism, his death on the cross on behalf of sinners, and the spirit of God, they all testify to the same thing. Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus is the Son of God, and that we have overcome the world by having faith in who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Now, these three things, these three entities testify, testify to the same thing. And in the Jewish world, a testimony of two or more was vital to something being believed and accepted in a judicial context. Now, while I don't personally use King James translation, if you are reading from that translation, you might notice that this verse is different. Instead of water, blood, and spirit, someone probably in the 1500s changed this to say, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit testify to the same thing. They're in agreement. And while that might be easier to digest, that is an assumption of what John was communicating here, and it's not consistent with the earliest manuscripts that we now possess. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that. So what does the testimony from water, blood, and spirit do? Verse 9, John says, we accept human testimony. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. John speaks through the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he says that human testimony, while a way to confirm something, pales in comparison to the testimony that God gives about his own son. And then John, while pointing to the positive of accepting God's testimony about his own son, then contrasts with the negative by describing what one who does not accept this testimony does. Here's what he says, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Liar! Because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. I think you'll hear us say this year, even more than in years past, how important it is to believe God at his word. We have, unfortunately, not necessarily any of you sitting here right now, but I think in Christendom, we have exchanged faith in God and what he says with simply believing in Jesus. And while believing in Jesus is a real thing, I think it's been dumbed down to mean that we don't argue that he existed, we treat him as important, but rather than obeying and loving him through his commands, we replace his commands with advice that we can take or leave. And hear me, church, you and I, we all fall short. None of us obey perfectly. None of us are batting a thousand in doing what God says we ought to do, but we have a mediator We have a representative on our behalf named Jesus who did what we were unable and unwilling to do and we can rest in his goodness. That doesn't mean we don't respond to his love with love of our own by obeying his commands that are not burdensome because we love him. And so to claim we believe, but to divorce our belief from how we obey is to make God out to be a liar because of what he says about his son. And I don't think anyone who claims Jesus, who claims that they follow Jesus means to effectively communicate that God is a liar. But God says that we do this when we don't actually believe what he says about his son and the majesty in which Jesus is. Verse 11. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. 
and this life is in his son. So here it is. Here's the eternal rub as you sit here in the pews, as you listen to this, possibly on your couch or while you're driving or possibly in the restroom. I don't know where everyone listens to the the podcast. To believe God, it begins and is centralized all in believing that God has given us eternal life. And according to the scriptures, John, in John 17.3, I don't have this verse, but we talk about it all the time. John 17.3 says, eternal life is this, to know the one true God and the Son whom he has sent. Jesus said these words, documented by John. And God has given us eternal life. God has given us access to him. God has brought us into communion for eternity with him through who? Through his Son. And this is the testimony that makes every person who believes a child of God. And for us who claim we believe, for us who claim we identify with this eternal life in the eternal son, we have an affection for every other sibling in the faith. Now, I'm not saying we all do this right, but there is an affection. There is a possibility of an affection, if not because we understand the grace that we too have received and they have received, but possibly that affection for the other sibling in the faith is because we obey God at his commands because he is our God and his commands are not burdensome. So let me share a little bit more about that conversation I had with my kid's former PE teacher. We were talking. We are having a good old time. And he made a comment, and even though I believe I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, there's still that religious side of me that kind of feels like I have to do certain things in order to keep God's love. Am I the only one that does this? Okay, thanks, Megan. There was this religious... Uh, side of my brain that made me feel a little embarrassed when my buddy said this. He said, you ready? You know, when I talk to you about, uh, when I'm talking about you to other people, I sometimes forget that you're a pastor. rut And that was actually my response, not out loud, but in my mind. But he continued, because you're such a normal guy. Oh, cool. All right. And it doesn't seem like you're trying to sell me your religion. Okay, that's not as bad as I thought. Sidebar, how many of you have grown up in the church? Boston, raise your hand. You're growing up in the church currently. Perfect. How many of you have been told or felt like you're supposed to share Jesus all the time? Right? And to quote a verse a little out of context, let your light shine before men so they will then give praise to your God. And that is what I think a lot of us who grew up in the church think. And we have to tell everyone. So someone sneezes, God bless you. So about God, someone takes out the trash. You know, my life was trash before God. Like we're always looking for opportunities to bring up God. But God doesn't say that how much you talk about him will help others understand that you are his disciples. Jesus says, people will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So at this point, I wasn't exactly sure if my buddy was affirming me or rebuking me and not even knowing it. But he then said this, you know what? I am way more inclined, this is spiritually dead language, but I understood and you'll understand what he meant. I am way more inclined to follow you or the God that you believe in because of how I see you act 
and how I see you love. And I was like, what? And I asked, how do you know that about me? And he said, well, I've known you for over five years now, and I know your children. And I know what type of growth have happened in your children because I've seen them and I've walked with them, and I trust that's because of what you and Aaron believe. Oh, now, at this point, I'd love to now confirm to the church that uh, at this moment, he decided to commit his life to Jesus Christ, and we baptized him in a yard of Coors Light. We were at Yard House. But no, that wasn't what happened. We talked about getting together again soon and more regularly and continuing to talk through what difference Jesus has made in my life and our household. Verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Wow. John concludes this thought, at least today, with those who have the Son, they have life, and those who don't have the Son don't have life. Which is true. But let me break it down. It's the first of the, or it's the, whatever today's date is, seventh. It's the first Sunday of 2024. Let me break this down. The life that we are born into, church, the natural life if, of water, if you will, is a life that is spiritually dead because we are born into a thing called sin. And sin, while many, many, even I do sometimes, want to treat sin as a list of do's and don'ts, is actually a heart condition of not making Jesus central, not trusting God at his word, and not finding our identity in Jesus and his finished work as our sole means of right standing before a holy and perfect God. And because of this sin condition that since Adam screwed up, not Colazzo, Adam in the garden, since Adam screwed up in the garden, we have been born into the preference of choosing our own way rather than God and his way. And so this life that God is offering to every single one of you, in Jesus, is a life restored before the fall of man. And so we, by trusting God at his word, not by our obedience and how good we are, but by trusting God's testimony about his son, that he is the Christ, and that our justification, our right standing, our salvation, our goodness is because of him and what he has done. If we find our identity in him and that truth, we then can obey God and his commands, not because we have to, but motivationally speaking, because we want to and because we get to. And then life, life eternal. Knowing God the Father in the, and the Son and the Holy Spirit is now received. And we're born again. We're born again of the Spirit. We're born again in Christ. And we get to live a life that begins over time. It, it starts to happen as our affections are stirred for God and for others. And as obedience takes place in our lives that not only has been justified by Jesus, but is now being sanctified by Jesus. Meaning over time, the work of the Spirit is to make us more Christ-like. And as I look around this room, I've seen God work in your lives as I have known you. 
This is a work of the Spirit. Not because you do things outwardly, not because you're a really nice person, not because you, you give money or anything like that. It's because God and His work, you've focused on the Son, and the Son is gradually changing you for the glory of His name. And that is the life that we're offered. And the life that we can receive, oh, may we want this life and to know this Jesus. Worship team, come on up. And I want to pray for us. And I want to encourage you. It's a brand new year. And as you're going to hear us on Sundays and as community groups start and as we do more things together as a community, you're going to start to notice that that we really can't just be like, hey, we believe and that's it. There is a application that's attached to our belief. Not to justify us, but because we're justified, we get to love God back by obeying his commands. And so as we sing these songs, as we lead towards takeaways, which Jason will lead us in in a few moments after the two songs, I'd encourage you to think through, what are you going to do differently? Based on the text, based on the application of what we talked about, what do you feel like you ought to do differently? Because we don't know your heart. We just know that if you trust God, God starts to do business in our hearts and starts to change us and make us more like him. So what are you going to do differently? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we trust you at your word. And I pray, God, that your commands and your challenge to us, and every time we open the word, we'd see the invitation of being changed by you. And we wouldn't stiff arm it, but we'd want it. We'd want to grow. We'd want to change. We'd want to look more like your son. And so, Lord, would you do the work in us that we can't do ourselves? And for those of us that maybe are yet to really bow a knee to Jesus, would you, would you show us that? And would you give us the faith to believe you? Would you give us the faith to bow down? Would you give us the faith to trust you, Lord, and trust your testimony about yourself? We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.